Today we are starting a brand new series called Seven. In both campuses, um, we're doing this series. It's called Seven, but it's eight weeks. <laughs> I know. Today's an intro week into the series. More um, specifically, the, the series is the seven dimensions of discipleship. The seven dimensions of discipleship. This last April, if you remember, uh, we did a sermon series coming out of Easter called House on Fire. Anybody remember that sermon series? House on Fire. Um, we had a big, you know, house that was on fire on the, on the stage. And that whole series was basically taking a look at where society is right now. We, we talked about how um, the metaphorical house is on fire. Morality it was declining. So many things are happening in the world. And, and we talked about that in this series. And really, this fall is just a continuation of what we talked about there. But so many people right now are putting their identity into things that were never meant to hold or carry identity. People are putting their identity into things like sexuality and success, power, their jobs, sports. And when we put our identity into those things, they crumble. And in essence, we crumble in return because of it. And in light of all of this going on and people thinking that putting their identity into these things is the hope of self-fulfillment, what we found now in society is an epidemic of the opposite of fulfillment. We, we find an epidemic of depression at an all-time high. Anxiety at an all-time high. Suicide at an all-time high. You would think that if what society is saying would fulfill you, if it was, why are all of these things skyrocketing? Because none of them are meant to hold identity. But in, all, in light of all this, people are doing it and they're searching and trying to find fulfillment, but finding themselves more empty than they could have ever imagined. And they're trying to escape the feeling of emptiness and loneliness into things like alcohol and drugs and different kinds of addictions like pornography. People are trying to escape in, into things like consumerism and into experimenting in different religions and even the occult and all kinds of things are happening at this time and people are searching for something that they're not going to find in the areas they're searching but we all look around right now, and one thing, wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum or wherever in all these things, there's one thing we can all have in common. We look around in the world, and it's not good. It's not good. You look at the future for our kids, and you're wondering, what is this going to look like in the next 10, 15, 20 years? And the knee-jerk reaction is to ask the question, and we should, what's the problem? What's the problem? And what's the answer? We all want to know. What's the problem? And what's the answer? The problem to all of this is a problem beneath the problems we see. And we've talked about this this year. The problem is a spiritual one. The problem is a spiritual one. There is a spiritual war going on. And it appears right now, by and large, especially in the West, it appears that we are losing that spiritual battle. But there's one thing the Bible never promises. Never promises. Ever. Even as we get toward the end of the age, it never promises, promises us that evil will gain power, that the darkness will grow in strength and become something more than it has been in the past. It's not that evil is getting stronger or becoming more evil. It's that the church is becoming less and less of what it's supposed to be. Individual believers are becoming less and less of what we're supposed to be. And so the light 
is falling under the darkness and we're looking around in the world and we are trying to find answers. And the knee-jerk reaction will be, politics is the answer. If we get the right person in, all the problems go away. And I've said before, I believe in voting. I have strong political opinions. You're just not gonna hear them from the platform here. I've got all, I, I believe in voting. I believe in doing all those things. But it does not matter who wins the next election in the course of evil and good in the world. There is one institution that Jesus built that said this is the hope of the world and it is the church of Jesus Christ. And I knew you were gonna clap there and I'm glad you did. I was banking on it. But this is where the rubber hits the road. We go, yes, it's the church. And in the back of all of our minds, we're like, but what does that mean? What does it mean? You can't elect a church to be president. What, what, what do we do? What do we need to become? There's one word in scripture that we are all supposed to individually become. And if we do, the world will change. And that word is disciple. We are called not just to be believers in Jesus or even followers of Jesus. We are called to be disciples of Jesus. And when we aren't, what happens is we are proclaiming an answer to the world's problems, but the problem isn't getting solved. So the world looks at our answer and the problem we're pointing at, and they're saying, your answer isn't working either, so why would I leave my answer that isn't working and join your answer that isn't working? You following me? And so where we are now is we have to learn what it means to truly become disciples of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19 is just the very beginning of the Great Commission, which I'll talk about more in a, in a few minutes. But as Jesus is getting ready to ascend, the very last thing he says in, in physical form and ending his three years of ministry, right before he goes back to the Father, he says, therefore go and make, what? Disciples of all nations. Go make disciples. Who is he speaking to in that story? He's speaking to his disciples telling them to go make what? Disciples. Disciples. There, there's one command that he gives us that's supposed to solve what's going on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. I love that quote. How do we know that we as a society, when I say we in this sermon series, just, just so you know, I'm putting myself into this. I believe this is a topic we have all struggled in and we need to grow in as well. But how do we know that this is a problem in our society? Well, we look at statistics and these statistics I'm about to show you come from the Barna Group, discipleship.org, and the American Worldview Inventory from the years 2022 to 2023. First one is this, fewer than 5% of churches in the United States have a reproducing, disciple-making culture, which means every generation that goes on and we pass the baton, there are few and fewer and fewer actually actual disciples being made and our concentration has moved from making disciples 
to just gaining followers and attenders by and large. The average Christian churchgoer attends church one to two times per month. I want you to think about this. The average Christian churchgoer in America, one to two times a month. Let's say your family comes once a month to church. And then somehow in that, you start thinking, why isn't church working? And then you start seeing everything that you're putting all of the time into that may not be bad things, but just think about it. I'm telling you, once a week, once a week is not cutting it with just church attendance. Once a month really won't. And the fewer we come to church, then what we're doing, the, the, more, the, the, more, the littler we are involved in church, what we're doing is we're telling our family the standard is lowering and our priorities are changing because we're prioritizing some different things. Of an estimated 175 million American adults who identify as Christian, just 6% or 15 million of them actually hold a biblical worldview. Did you know when we did that House on Fire series, people asked me all the time, have you gotten a lot of pushback from this series from non-Christians? Can I be honest with you? I got zero from non-Christians. I got a whole lot of pushback from Christians that no longer have a biblical worldview. That's where the pushback came from. People that say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but I just, uh, I don't really appreciate that part of the Bible, and, but I, I know, but that part of the Bible is just so old and... We have to have a biblical worldview, or if we don't, how's the world going to change? 62% of self-identified born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. It's not a, 62% of believers, of Christians, don't believe the Holy Spirit is real, the power of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus said we can't live without. He looked at his followers and said, don't leave Jerusalem and try to do life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And almost two-thirds of American Christians don't even believe he's real. 95% of Christians have never personally led someone to Christ. 95%. 38% of Christians Pray regularly. And you might say, well, that, that sounds actually not so bad. But let me tell you, the minimum standard on this, when you look at the research, they ask people, the baseline 30 seconds, and however you define regular, how often do you pray? Or do you pray regularly, even if it's just 30 seconds? And 38%, we've got to learn to pray. And when it comes to giving this spiritual discipline, most, 80%, most or 80% of Christians, churchgoers, give about 2% of their income to the church. About three to 5% of those who attend and donate to churches give their tithe, which is 10%. So the call in scripture, and I'll talk about this in a few weeks. I'm not gonna tell you which week because I want you to be here, but I, I wanna, I'll talk about this in a few weeks. The Old and New Testament points to the tithe. I tithe, our leadership team tithes. We, we don't ever preach something we don't do or believe in ourselves, but only three to 5% of churchgoers tithe. And again, tithe literally means 10th. So just because I give something doesn't mean I'm tithing. And this is also interesting on here. Of those who are tithers, this is awesome. Most of them, 77% donate 11 to 20% 
of their income. You wanna know what this means? You wanna know what this means? That those who are tithing, those who are tithing, see it so much as a supernatural principle and they see God so active in their life and in their tithe that they don't stay at 10%. 10% is now the new floor and they go above 10% because they know they cannot outgive God. They, ha- they know that their foundation under their feet is firm. These are just signs, statistical signs that we aren't growing like we need to be growing in the spiritual disciplines so we can become fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 19, when Jesus is first calling his disciples, he says this, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. There's three components of this one verse that kind of give us the framework for what it means to be a disciple. The first part is he says, follow me. So there's this conscious decision to follow Jesus, which comes from the mind. This is the head part of becoming a disciple. It's a decision. Yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. The second part of this, the framework of discipleship is the heart. This is the posture of an open heart saying, I am wanting to be changed by Jesus. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you, mold you, change you into becoming the third part, fishers of men. So we have the head, the heart, fishers of men is the hands part of discipleship. So there's the decision. I am going to be a disciple. I want to follow Jesus and not just be a vague believer, but be a disciple because that's the answer to my life and the lives of others around me. But then also I want to have a heart that is moldable by Jesus. And then I want to do with my hands active ministry as Jesus calls me and commissions me to do ministry in my life. So there's the head, the heart, and the hands. So working off of those three components, what is the running definition of disciple that we're going to have for this series? Here's the definition we're going to work with. Someone who is following Jesus being changed by Jesus and committed to the mission of Jesus. Someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus and committed to the mission of Jesus. So just think in your own minds as I ask you this, are you a disciple? Are you following Jesus? Are you continually being changed and grown by Jesus? And are you on mission for Jesus. So then the definition of discipleship would be this, the act or state of becoming a disciple-making disciple. Because we gotta know, discipleship isn't just for me to become a disciple so I can get smarter and because I can be holier. The whole purpose of me becoming a disciple is for the purpose of multiplication and making more disciples. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go make Disciples. The essence of discipleship is more disciples being made. When you look at Jesus and what he did in his three years of in-person ministry with his disciples, he was so intentional. It's one of my favorite parts of, of watching the show, The Chosen. How many of you guys have watched The Chosen? Again, if you haven't, do it. I know people come up to me all the time, well, it's not technically, perfectly, theologically. Okay, just watch the show. Okay, it's, they're doing their best. Okay, so... Jesus, I love his interaction with the disciples. I love how this intention, you see this reflected obviously in scripture. 
He is taking them on a three-year journey, doing something with them to prepare them for their personal calling and to make a real difference in the world. I don't know about you, but that's what I want with my life. I want to become everything that Jesus has called me to be, and I wanna make a difference in the world while I'm here. Anybody else? I wanna be who Jesus has called me to be, and I wanna make a difference in the world, because at the end of our lives, those are the only two things that are going to matter. Am I who God called me to be, and did I do what he called me to do? So how did Jesus, what did he do with his disciples? How did he walk them on this journey? He did four things to help them grow in their discipleship. Number one was this. We look in this, in all of the gospels, we look at it and we see large group teaching. This is, this is an easy part of discipleship. This is what this is. When the pandemic first started, um, we, we, were, had a, we faced a big problem kind of with what to do, big question, with what to do with our young adult ministry. Back then, weekly, my, my brother and his wife Delaney were our young adult pastors, and before the pandemic even started, they felt God speak to them about planting a church in Washington, D.C., and even the time frame for that to happen. Then the pandemic came, and I was like, did Brandon, did God change his mind because of the pandemic, you know? And he goes, no, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna do this. I was like, okay. So then we're, at, we're with, at facing this question on what to do with five to 600 young adults that meet weekly in the middle of a pandemic. But if you're like me, one of the things you saw when the pandemic first started, when it came to believers in Christianity, those first couple months, I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. Those first couple months, it was like everybody lost their minds. You know what I'm talking about? I, I remember seeing people that I thought had such a strong foundation under their feet with Christianity in the church walk away at the drop of a hat. I watched people that I never in a million years would have walked away from a marriage walk away. I watched all of these things happen and so many people just vanished and immediately I knew what we were witnessing is that so many houses that we thought, using Jesus' parable, that we thought were built on the rock were actually built on sand. And what I started realizing and having so much conviction about was discipleship has become a lost art and a lost belief system and a lost priority in the church at large in our country. And I knew discipleship had to be somewhat of an answer or the answer. And so immediately we started working. I did this study and, and these are the four things that I came up with that Jesus did and they're so simple, but it was large group teaching. Number two was small group discussion. They went from the large group and then he would get his disciples off to the side and say, what do you think about this? Remember Caesarea Philippi? He has his disciples gathered around and he say, who do people say that I am? He's been teaching in large group who he is. Then he says, well, who do people say? Well, some say this, some say that, but who do you say? Who do I? All of a sudden, they're having to wrestle through questions. I'll, I think that, that meeting in Caesarea Philippi is a whole lot like what you would experience in our, in our alpha courses that we do here at the church. It's wrestling through questions and, and working things out in that small group. Number three, the third part is one-on-one -on -one mentorship. So you have large group teaching, small group discussion, one-on-one -on -one mentorship, which is huge. Jesus would do this with Peter, with James and John, and, and take even the 12 into a smaller group with three and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And then the fourth part is intentional, gradual commissioning. And what you see later in the ministry, the three years, Jesus sending out the 12, sending out the 72, sending them out and then bringing them back and critiquing their ministry. And because all of those three years was about one thing, creating disciples who would make disciples. 
That, that's, what, that's what it was. And he, so he used these four things, but when you look at these four things that Jesus did in his three years, the first two, I think the church of America, churches are generally good at. The large group, we're, we're good at that. Small groups, most churches I know have, have small group options. Some have uh, more thriving small group systems than others, but I think we're decent at those. Number three, if you would draw a line between one and two and then three and four, just right there in the middle, that's where I feel like so much of this drops off in the church experience in America. Because what happens is somewhere along the way in the last 100 to 200 years, we started redefining church as something we go to once a week rather than something we were a part of, a community. And if it's something I go to once a week, then you'll never know anything beyond number two. At best, maybe number one. Maybe number one. But number three is where the rubber hits the road with discipleship. Number three is, is, is that organic relationship and friendship that comes out of one and two. You attend church and you hear us talk about small groups or alpha and you get into one of those and all of a sudden a friendship sparks, a mentor, uh, a, a whatever it is, that relationship starts and then all of a sudden there's the friendship and you don't even know, you think it's just a friendship. But what's happening is discipleship. It's the one-on-one -on -one walking with someone, doing life together and then this intentional gradual commissioning, the church has to get better at helping people identify their callings, what God has called them to do, and sending people out to do what he's called them to do. But again, number three and number four can really only happen if we get number one and number two right. So what I wanna do just for the a few minutes of my remaining time today, again, today is more of an appetizer and next week we're jumping right in to, to these seven dimensions of discipleship, but I wanna show you today, just, a, just for a few minutes, the true need of discipleship and what we need in light of it. So number one is this, what we need? We need, need a discipleship mindset. We need a discipleship mindset. What do I mean? We, we've gotta have <clears throat> clear expectations on, on what this is. Now, we just came out of a six-week series called Mighty to Save. Every week of this series, I, I love uh, series like Mighty to Save because it's just gospel, good news, every single week. I mean, it's, you know, salvation is by grace, through faith. I mean, uh, the amount of people that came to Christ over the last six weeks is amazing in our church. I, I love it over and over and over again in this series. I, I would say salvation is free. But then Jesus also tells us, I'm about to read to you, that discipleship is costly. So how can salvation be free and discipleship costly? Because I am saved only by what Jesus did on the cross. I can't do anything to earn my salvation. I'm just acknowledging what he did and calling on his name. But to become more like Jesus, I gotta get involved in that. To become holy as he is holy, I've gotta decide I wanna be that. To make a difference in a world that's spiraling, I have to be different than the world. I have to make a conscious decision and, and effort to change and grow with Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit enabling me. But he says, number one, discipleship comes with a cost. Here's the mindset. It comes with a cost. Luke 14, 25 through 33 says, once when the large crowds of people were going along with Jesus, he turned and said to them, those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless they love me, unless they love me more than they love their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and themselves as well. Now, keep this right here just for a second. Once when large crowds of people were going along with Jesus. Now, 
this in kind of like, I know I'm speaking in sweeping broad terms, but this in the American church, most, I'll be honest, most even pastors, some, I won't say most, some pastors, I don't wanna be judgy, some pastors, some Christians, they would say this is the, this is the pinnacle of ministry. The moment it says, and Jesus looked behind him and there were large crowds. That's what most of us applaud at, large crowd. That means something great is happening. But the moment Jesus sees a large crowd, he goes, ah, this is too big. We must make it smaller. It's kind of the opposite of what we think, but he knew he was gaining people physically walking behind him, following on a path, but he was not gaining people who would be willing to follow him into the future spiritually. Let's continue. Those who do not carry their own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. If one of you is planning to build a tower, you sit down first and figure out what it will cost you to see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't, you will not be able to finish the tower after laying the foundation, and all who see what happened will make fun of you. They will say, you began to build, but can't finish the job. This is what Jesus turns around and says to the crowd, okay? He says, first of all, to be my disciple, you're gonna have to love me more than everything you think you should love most, number one. And he says, secondly, you need to have the end goal in mind or with good intentions, you will set out to build a life that looks like mine, Jesus says, to set out to build a life that looks like mine. But if you don't have the end in mind and count the cost, then you will walk away before the job is ever finished. The apostle Paul one day said, he finished the race. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, if you're gonna set out to build something, you need to have the end in mind. And I've seen too many people over the last four or five years with good intentions start out. Yes, I wanna follow Jesus. I, I wanna do this with good intentions, but they're not looking into the future and counting the cost of, well, what does that look like when I'm at work? And there's never a call to perfection, but there is a call to change. It'll cost us. But then you read something like that and you wonder, well, how does that, because that kind of seems heavy, like, man, Dustin, at some point, are you gonna start selling this or is this just like a, I don't wanna do this kind of sermon? It's cost us, all this stuff. But, but stay with me, what is, what is that kind of heavier passage? How does that correlate with Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30 when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And he says this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if I was around for both of those teachings, I would go, Jesus, I have a question. How is your yoke easy and the burden is light, but a few chapters ago, or maybe a year ago, you said, this is gonna cost you greatly. Jesus, how do you reconcile those? I, I, I don't understand how it can cost me greatly, but at the same time, it's easy. And what Jesus is saying is this, the cost of not being a disciple is much higher than the cost of being a disciple. The cost of discipleship is nothing compared to the cost of lack of discipleship in our lives. I've seen too many families pay the highest price because they refuse to be disciples. Families broken apart and completely broken through rebellion and all these different things in the family and marriage is broken apart because someone there didn't like the cost of becoming a disciple. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, as costly as discipleship might be, 
Nothing, nothing is a higher price than not becoming a disciple. We have to become disciples of Jesus Christ. The second part of the discipleship mindset is conflict. Conflict. With discipleship comes a conflict. Luke 14, 31 through 33 says, or what king would go to war, he's continuing in the same passage, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. What Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying, if you want everything from me that I want to give you, the fulfillment, the life, the purpose, the destiny, then make me the Lord of your life. Give me everything. You might be, well, Jesus wants like me to, like, how do I give him everything? You are willing. The gift is the willingness. The gift to Jesus is the openness, saying there's not one part of my life, Jesus, that you can't touch. Not one part. You want, you want finances? Take it. You want time? Take it. You want purpose, identity? Take it. And Jesus is saying, once you do that, you're counting the cost. But what's so interesting about this part of the passage is he uses battle. He first uses building, but then he uses battle in this one. And I think it's super interesting because he says, if you don't count the cost, that there's a spiritual war happening, if we forget that there's a spiritual war, that there is an enemy marching against us, Jesus uses this story and he says, if you don't count the cost and prepare for the spiritual battle ahead through becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, then eventually, what he says, is you will make a truce with the enemy. He said eventually what will happen is, just like the builder quitting halfway, eventually if we don't count the cost and understand that there's a spiritual battle and that I need to be continually growing in the seven dimensions, what will happen is the fight will become too much, the intimidation will become too much, and the temptation that you've held at bay, you're gonna give in to. You're finally gonna say, enemy, let's make a truce. And again, I've seen too many people make a truce with the enemy, settle on a spouse they never should have married, on a place they never should have gone, been with friendships they never should have been with, handled money in a way they never should have handled it, made business decisions they never should have made out of lack of discipleship. I think it's interesting in this, two, in this story, Jesus uses two things, then and today, that always cost us in the end, more than we initially believe. Building and battle. Trust me, I know, we're building a North Campus. You initially think, hey, we got the budget perfect, right? Perfect. And then, oh, this happens, and that happens, and so and so, and so and so. It happens, whether you're building a house or building. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you're building something, the budget at the beginning is important, and you stick to it, but always costs you more, and battle always costs us more. We look at government, we look at history, it always costs us more. And these are the two illustrations, metaphors that Jesus uses. And then the third part of this, of this first thought, with discipleship comes a commission. And I already mentioned this, Jesus and his great commission, right before he ascends, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. One more time, he is speaking to disciples, telling them to make disciples. And then he says, how do you do that? You teach them 
to obey everything I have commanded. Now think back to when you were a teenager. If you are a teenager, think back to Friday night. The last time your parents told you had to do something and you had to obey. Every time we obey something, it costs us something because obedience is yielding to something else, right? So he's saying, in essence, the posture of Christianity, he says, teach them what it means to yield to the word of God, to yield to what Jesus says, to yield to the Holy Spirit. And he says, of all the things Jesus could have said, I'll tell you how to make disciples, we've gotta teach people to yield, yield to what God says. But again, the reason why this is so hard for so many people is we literally live in a society that says yield to nothing and no one. If someone tells you what to do, they don't understand you, they don't get you. And if it's God telling you that, he doesn't understand and he doesn't get you. Just be you. The complete, that one statement, just be you, is the complete opposite It is the antithesis statement of everything the Bible stands for. The Bible says, just be who God intended you to be. And the world says, just be who you want to be. We need to be discipled. We have a mission, a commission. Jesus says, go. This is our purpose. This is the hands part of discipleship. We can't make disciples, though, if we aren't becoming disciples. And in closing, number two is this. We need a discipleship model. So we need a discipleship mindset. Number two, we need a discipleship model. Are you guys still with me today? All right. Four of you. Great. Thank you. We need a discipleship model. I want to just real quick, I want to give credit where credit is due on something. Over the course of this series, we're going to be going through these seven dimensions of discipleship. This last spring, I was asked to speak at a uh, pastor's round table in the Dallas area, and it was on discipleship, and I was just gonna share some of the things we've done as a church in the past with Next Gen and all that. So when I was there, though, I didn't realize ex- how extensive this gathering was, and if you don't know, we are, we are a part of um, the denomination, the Assemblies of God, and this was an Assemblies of God round table, and I, I went there, and just some amazing people on the leadership team, the national leadership team of, of the denomination, and I'm teaching on discipleship. I go sit down, we're talking, and, and um, one of the guys on the leadership team next to me said, hey, we've been working on something for years because of the need of discipleship and really trying to help people and, and trying to figure out how the rubber hits the road on this. And we came up with something called the seven dimensions of discipleship. And I was like, oh man, get, you know, let me see, let me see. So he pulls up this PDF and he sends it to me on my phone. I'm looking at this. And what it was was years of work and studies that they did. And they looked at each one of these seven And through all of scripture and the studies that they did with people, what they found was if all seven of these are at play in a believer's life, and if a believer is just growing one step at a time in each of these categories, we are becoming disciples who will make disciples. And so in this series, what we're wanting to do is make this as practical as we possibly can going through these. One of the things that the Assemblies of God did, and I was looking at this in this this PDF that he sent me, was each one of these, they broke it down by every age bracket in the entire church and created mile markers of where every age would need to be by certain ages based on each category in the church. It's phenomenal information. So immediately I saw this 
and because of all the years that I've been working on discipleship, and it's just, it's a lot to try to think through how to steer a, a church through this, and it was like a gift to, to me, and I immediately came back to our team and said, this is a gift, and, and I wanna jump all into this, and immediately we started planning this sermon series for the fall. So every age group in our church is going through this sermon series at the exact same time. Our kids, our youth, our young adults, our adults, everybody's going through it. We have many small groups when we launch those that are also going through this at the exact same time. The, the seven dimensions are worship, what we really understand what worship is in our everyday lives, not just singing songs. What is a life response to God? The Holy Spirit is real, based not, I mean, I know the statistic earlier said it wasn't. Despite that, the Holy Spirit is very real and wants to empower you and give you gifts, and we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about generosity's role in your life and what the Bible actually says. Not a pastor trying to get money or a church, but that generosity sermon is going to be about your discipleship and how what giving looks like in your life and how God wants to bless your life with giving. Mission, what is, what is the mission of the church? But this series is about what's your mission? What's your calling? Not just, oh, my church goes on mission trips or I went on one, that's part of it. But what is your mission? It's part of you becoming a disciple. Prayer, it's too many people want, they, they believe, I'll say it like this. Almost every believer I've ever talked to says, I want to have a better prayer life than I have. I've never met a Christian who's like, ah, I kind of want to decrease. Everybody wants a better prayer life in their life, but very few people actually have a prayer life. We're gonna get super practical on that week. What does it look like here? What does it look like outside of church? Then we're gonna go to service. What does it look like to serve people on a daily basis? What does it look like to serve a spouse, our children, our parents, people on the street corner, people in the grocery store? What, what does it look like to have a serve, serving mindset? And then the Bible is the word of God. What, what does it mean to actually study the Bible? And we're gonna give every tool, every week there's gonna be tools and resources that we're giving you. We have a few very big surprises. I'm so bad at surprises. I wanna give all my Christmas gifts to my friends and family like December 1st. It's the worst thing ever to have to wait. I don't wanna wait, but I'm going to. Be proud of me. To, I, because I wanna tell you all of it, but I am gonna tell you a couple. <laughs> okay, so. One of, one of the things, I'll look at worship, for example. Next Sunday, I'm, doing, I'm opening up the series with worship. And all age groups, right? So not this Wednesday, but the next, we're having a worship night, an interactive worship night. Don't let interactive scare you. It just means there's gonna be different times to this service where there's gonna be different objectives with contemplation, writing something on a piece of paper, whatever it might be, but it's gonna be powerful. We're gonna go through an hour and 15 minutes of really biblically looking at what it means to be a worshiper of God in my everyday life. But what's cool about this, that's, not, that's cool, but that's not even a surprise. What's cool is that we're not just doing it with adults in this room. Our whole kids team has worked so hard and they're doing a full interactive worship night for our kids based on age groups in, in, in preschool and elementary school. They're gonna be going through it with self-reflection. They're gonna be praying over each other for healing and miracles. And I believe that miracle stories are gonna come out of that. And we want five and six-year-olds to know that God can use you just as much as he can use your pastor. Because that's the truth of the word of God. You guys believe that? One more quick thing and then I'll turn it over. The, um, the missions week, when we talk about this, again, it's, it's far more than just missions trips and, and, and world missions or even local. It's how to be missional. 
But one of the things we're gonna be launching on that day is telling you that in 2024, we'll be giving you the specifics, that yes, we're, we're gonna have more adult missions trips than we've, we've had, um, I think, ever next year. We're doing a, a young adult missions trips, youth missions trips, and we're also announcing on that Sunday that we're doing the first ever kids missions trip we are working with one of our co-church network family pastors uh, that pastors in Pruitt, New Mexico on the reservation. And we're gonna, it's about an hour and 15 minutes away and parents are more than welcome to go. We'll be doing all the safety stuff. Don't worry, all that. Don't send emails yet. But we're gonna be doing all that stuff and we're gonna be taking kids and they're gonna be putting on a kids event for the children in the community in Pruitt, New Mexico on the reservation near Gallup. How cool is that? And what we're wanting to do is every age group is involved in this. On top of that, I'm closing, but on top of that, our staff came together and we made a 50-page devotional to go along with this sermon series. It is nice, we've worked so hard on it. Every week of this sermon series, it goes through all seven of these dimensions, and we made it, we're giving them away for free uh, to everybody here and in Maui as you guys come in next week. And we want you to go through these with your family. The kids are also getting one, um, scaled down for them. Um, it's gonna be an amazing thing. So what we're asking is this, if your family attends here or if a group of friends, whatever it is, go through this with someone. And our, our hope and our prayers after 50 days can new habits start to be formed. Every week we're gonna tell you what our church has to offer in every single one of these categories. We are fully committed to helping you be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you guys excited about this journey for the next seven weeks?